Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the Holy Sabbath. Father, we thank you for the many blessings today already. We ask that your Holy Spirit would continue to draw us near to you and help us to appreciate the salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. Father, if there are those here today who are on the fence or have not yet committed their lives to you, I pray your Spirit would speak very clearly to them and that they would hear that gospel invitation, come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest unto your souls. For we ask and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, in, and I even thought about going into the subject, righteousness by faith, this is one of those things that you can get into discussions. I'll just leave it at that word, discussions. In the Adventist church, from here until the Lord comes, and you probably won't cover everything, we know when we're talking about the gospel that we're talking about something that we are going to be studying, we're told, through eternity. And so I'm not going to solve everything today, but I do think that there is something about righteousness by faith that can be known and must be known in the time that we live in. Now, just a little heads up, I'm going to share with you a statement in a moment that uses the term justification by faith. And these come from a root word in the Greek, dikaiosune. I mean, they're all justified, justification, righteous, righteousness. Come from that word. Righteousness is from that word dikaiosune. I'm going to talk about that a little bit more as we go. But today we often use the term righteousness by faith when we're discussing how we receive the righteousness of Christ for justification. Now, I shared this statement the last time we... We, uh, in the last message, Testimonies to Ministers, page 91. There's a turning point in our history where Ellen White wrote, The Lord in his great mercy sent a most precious message to his people through elders Wagner and Jones. This message was to bring more prominently before the world the uplifted Savior, the sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. It presented justification through faith in the surety. Capital S, referring to Christ. It invited the people to receive the what? The righteousness of Christ has become a little clearer as we go, which is made manifest or evidenced in obedience to all the commandments of God. Now notice what it goes on to say. This is the message that God commanded to be given to the world. It is the what? It is the third angel's message, which is to be proclaimed with a loud voice and attended with the outpouring of his spirit in large measure. That last part is referring to what? What do we call it as Seventh-day Adventist? The latter rain, okay? Is that something that we should be looking for now? Uh, the reason I'm bringing this up is to let you know that this is the message. This idea of righteousness by faith is something that we need now. Now, a, a, a statement that's similar for Review and Herald article. Ellen White wrote these words. Several have written to me inquiring if the message of justification by faith is the third angel's message, and I have answered it is the third angel's message in verity. Okay, this is the message that we are to understand. Now, I'm going to give you some reading assignments. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Howard, because I knew I was going to be bored this summer. I always get bored. I know young people get bored. In fact, old people say, I'm bored. Well, don't worry about being bored, because I'm going to give you reading assignments. And you're going to love these, but this is not for just the young. This is for everybody, simply because there are things that I think are very important for us to understand that I can't cover in sermon series. 
The first thing on the list is a book called Wounded in the House of His Friends. And folks, I cannot be, I spoke about this at camp meeting recently. There is a history, how many of you have heard the statement by Ellen White where she says, we have nothing to fear for the future except how God has led us in the past and is teaching in our past history. How many of you know that? I'm going to tell you that this is a history that you have probably never heard. I'm just telling you right out. You can question that. Go and pick up the book. It's documented history of this era. I'm sorry, the, the statement that we just looked at And it is a glimpse into our history of when we are told by inspiration that the latter rain began to fall upon God's people. It's going to happen again, which means we need to know what it looks like. And I'll tell you, there's a lot of Seventh-day Adventists who don't know what it looks like. They don't know what they're looking for. I preached on the Laodicean message. In my last message, I had some people say to me, wow, that was pretty hard-hitting stuff. That was nothing compared to what you would have heard Jones preaching in 1893. But some people today think, well, if you preach the gospel, you're not going to be pointing out sins like that. Read that book by Ron Duffield. Okay? The next thing there is, oh, I got an even easier thing. You go to adventaudio.org. You can get it on audio for free. And you can listen to it there, along with Jones' 1893 General Conference sermons. Ellen White says of those sermons of Jones, they were of the Holy Spirit's framing. And it was the third angel's message, in fact, 20 Four sermons on the third angel's message. And I'm only telling you that because you need to get an understanding of what... I I got people who've got an idea of what it's supposed to be like. We're told that when God's message comes in latter rain power, that a lot of God's church members are going to call it a false message and a false light because they're not acquainted with what it's supposed to look like. So I'm just... This will be for your benefit. If you've never read the book Faith and Works, look at that. Okay? That doesn't look like a hard read, does it? That's easy. Every Seventh-day Adventist should read this book. I can't cover enough in a sermon to cover all of these things. I want to encourage you. The book Great Controversy, just read the chapter Modern Revivals. I'm not going to say any more about that. And then in the book Pilgrim's Progress, if you've never read the book, there's a section in there on a man named Hopeful and his conversion, and that is one of the clearest step-by-step walk you through what it looks like when you come and accept Christ. And I just, I wish I could spend more time on that. I'm not going to. Those are for your enjoyment over the summer. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Howard. You're welcome. Now, let's talk about righteousness by faith. When we're talking about righteousness by faith, we've got to start out with righteousness. What are we talking about when we're talking about righteousness? Now, I did you a favor today and put the texts on the screen. And I want to go to Isaiah 45, 19. Okay? And the Bible says, I, the Lord, speak what? righteousness, I declare things that are right. What's the root word? Okay, Righteousness is what's right according to God. Not, what's, not according to you, not according to me. Everybody has a version of right. Righteousness is God's idea of right. Let's start with that uh, idea. Now we're going to build on it. I'm going to ask you a question. How does God define right from wrong? Anybody know what God's standard of right and wrong is? Psalm 119, 172 says, My tongue shall speak of your word for what? All your commandments are righteousness. We call the law of the Ten Commandments God's moral law, right? It defines right from wrong. Righteousness is what's right according to God. The Ten Commandments are a description of righteousness. This is why the Bible says in Deuteronomy chapter 6, And the Lord commanded us, to observe all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God, for our good always. That's an important little point, isn't it? Why does God ask us to obey him? 
because he wants us to. Well, he does, but it's not for his good. It's for our good always that he might preserve us alive as it is to this day. Now notice, then it will be what? Righteousness for us if we are careful to observe all these commandments before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. Now what we're going to see as we go on, you've heard this before, is we, we, we can't do that. In our own strength, there's no way we're keeping it. But the Bible says if we were to be careful to observe everything in God's law, it would be righteousness for us. Because the law of God is the law of righteousness. It's the standard of righteousness. It's a description of righteousness. However, I need, need us to understand something about this. The law, the Ten Commandment law, is more than just the Ten Commandments. There's a spiritual aspect to the law of God, right? Bible says in Romans chapter 7, the, the Apostle Paul says, the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. Okay, it's a spiritual law. There's more to it than what is on the surface, much like, uh, 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 you know, we, we, the, we've heard that the Ten Commandments is a transcript of God's character. Okay? But the commandments fall short of revealing God's character to us the same way a picture falls short of revealing the individual. Now, I can tell you I'm having lunch with my daughter today, and you can come down to the fellowship meal, and I can be sitting at the table with this. Put it right on the table there. This is my beautiful daughter, Annalise. There she is. We're just having lunch together. You're like, oh, that's a little odd. Don't you have a son, too? Oh, no, I brought him. I brought him. We have, I'm eating with my kids today. Okay? Now, a picture's great. I can look in the picture, and I can get certain things from my son and my daughter, but that's not the same as my son and daughter, is it? falls a little short of the reality, and we need to understand that as much as the righteousness of God is in the commandments... Only the Holy Spirit can help us to see the fullness of it. The righteousness of God is not just a list of things. Okay? This is why it says in the book of Isaiah 51, verse 7, now notice what the Lord says through the prophet Isaiah. Listen to me, capital M, this is God talking, you who know righteousness, you people in what? In whose heart is my law. So we're just going one step further. The law of God shows the righteousness of God, but it's not complete until it becomes part of the life. Okay, When you're talking about righteousness in the Bible, righteousness has to do with character. has to do with holiness. I want you to notice now the Greek word I mentioned in the New Testament that's translated righteousness is the word dikaiosune. Notice what the dictionary, the, the Strong's dictionary definition is of this. It means integrity, virtue, purity of life, rightness, now get this, correctness of thinking, feeling, and acting. Okay, that's far more than outward behavior. So if it could be possible that a person could outwardly keep the Ten Commandments, they're still falling way short of what the Bible is saying righteousness is. Okay? I just want you to understand, we're talking about righteousness. What we're talking about is the essence of the character of God, the essence of the goodness of God. A rightness, a correctness of thinking feeling, and acting. This is what it means to be spiritual. Okay, now hold on to that. We're going to develop that a little bit further. 
Righteousness, according to the Bible, is the requirement for heaven. Okay? 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9 tells us this. Do you not know that the who? The unrighteous will what? Not inherit the kingdom of God. Okay? Righteousness is a requirement for heaven. I want you to notice this statement from Review and Herald of September 21. It says, Why cannot those who claim to understand the scriptures see that God's requirement under grace is just the same as he made in Eden? Perfect what? Perfect obedience to his law, because that constitutes righteousness. And incidentally, perfect obedience can never be just outward. It has to come from the heart. goes on to say, In the judgment, God will ask those who profess to be Christians, why did you claim to believe in my son and continue to transgress my law? The gospel of the New Testament is not the Old Testament standard lowered to meet the sinner and save him in his sins. Folks, I'm going to tell you, I meet far too many Christians who think that the gospel just lowers the requirement. But I want you to get something very clear here. The reason that God's requirement for heaven is so high, and don't miss this, is it has to be way more than we can ever do by ourselves. Okay? Because otherwise, we would think we could do it by ourselves. God makes the standard impossible. I've had people say, you know, sometimes you make, you make salvation sound impossible. It is, without Jesus Christ. I mean, the whole idea is it's got to be so far out of my reach that I'd never think that I can reach it in my own strength. This was the problem in Christ's day. The Pharisees thought that they were keeping the standard of righteousness. And Jesus said in Matthew 5 and verse 20, I have on a slide coming up, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter into heaven. Today, the way people talk is, well, you don't have to be like the Pharisees. No, you don't want to be like the Pharisees. You've got to be more than It's impossible. And and to lower the standard of Christianity, let me tell you what it does. To lower the standard of Christianity is to perpetuate Phariseeism and self-righteousness in the church. The only reason Phariseeism exists is because you can go around like, hey, look, I'm all that and then some, until Jesus showed up, right? The Pharisees, everybody thought the Pharisees were the greatest until Jesus showed up, and in contrast, they saw what true righteousness was. The gospel of the New Testament is not the Old Testament standard lowered to meet the sinner and save him in his sins. God requires of all his subjects obedience, entire obedience to all his commandments. He demands now as ever perfect righteousness as the only title to heaven. Now, I know that's kind of heavy, but it needs to be. And and I'll talk about why that is in a moment. Now, the question, the follow-up question is this. We see righteousness is this. It's more than outward behavior. It's the essence of of, of, of how you think and how you act and how you feel. It's the, it's the very, it's being as good as God, which we're not. And, that, and that, that's the question. Righteousness is required for heaven. How much of it do we have? How much righteousness do we have according to Scripture? That's the text, Matthew 5.20. Romans 3 tells us this in verse 9. There is none righteous. No, not what? Not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. 
They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. Okay, going on to Isaiah 64, 6. We are all like an unclean thing and all our righteousnesses are like what? Filthy rags. So here we have righteousness. We need it. It's required to get into heaven and we have zero. Are you with me so far? Notice this statement. This is a really fascinating statement from the pen of Ellen White. She says in First Selected Messages 344, the religious services, the prayers, the praise, the penitent confession of sin ascend from who? I mean, you've got to hold on to this here. We're not talking about the guy who's wasting the morning drinking down at wherever else or carousing out at night or whatever. This is the religious service of true believers. And all of these things, the prayers, the praise, the penitent confession of sin, ascend, they go up to God, as incense to the heavenly sanctuary, but passing through the corrupt channels of humanity, that's us, they are so defiled that unless purified with blood, the blood of Christ, they can never be of value with God. Okay, so we have zero righteousness. Is that clear? And yet we have to have total righteousness to enter in to heaven. So how do we get it? You probably know Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. I want to highlight a couple of things here. The Bible says, For by grace... You have been saved through faith, and that what? Not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any should boast. I want to start with the second thing there. And he mentions two things, not of yourselves and not of works. These are different. Not of works means there's nothing I can do to manufacture the righteousness I need to get into heaven. I can't do anything. My works are never going to amount to it. But this other part is really good too. Not of yourselves. It goes deeper than the works. Not of yourselves means there's nothing, okay, not because you're in music department, not because you're on arrows, not because you're an heir of the Bill Gates fortune, not because your brother-in-law is the mayor. I mean, in other words, there's nothing in your family line, there's nothing in a, the, 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 uh, your race or your creed or the amount of money that you have or fame you have or anything of yourself that somebody's going to say, well, Tim, look, hey, you know, Dave, uh, Dave, Tim, you come on in. Aren't you, aren't you the nephew of the mayor? You know, whatever else. There's no... He's not the nephew of the mayor. Okay, just so you know. I just, that's an illustration. The idea is not of yourselves, not of works. The apostle's just trying to make it very clear that we don't have righteousness and there's nothing in us that will ever produce it. So where... Do we get it? Well, you know kind of the answer if you've been following along in the last few weeks. A couple weeks ago, the message was Christ, our righteousness. I want you to notice Romans chapter 1. The Bible says in Romans 1 verse 16, For I am not ashamed of what? The gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. For in it, that is in the gospel, the what? The righteousness of who? God is revealed. Is there any other righteousness? There isn't. This is why when the rich young ruler came to Jesus and he said, good teacher, Jesus said, 
Why do you call me good? There is only one who is good, and that is God. There is no other righteousness to be found. Knock yourself out. And that's what people do. They go through life to try to find righteousness. And let me make this a little more practical because we're talking in all this theological stuff. I got a, the deacon, head deacon gave me a, a pew, one of the pew cards that we have these little cards you can fill out. Turned one of those into me this last week. Didn't have a name on it. Said something along these lines. Why do we have to come here and sit in church every week and pretend that we enjoy the service and listen to all of this preaching that tells us how bad we are and um, dress up like we're going to a funeral, etc., etc. Okay? Now, I'll be honest with you. There was no name. I don't know if that came from a young person or an older person. But here's what I want you to understand. The Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians 2 that Foolish uh, spiritual things are foolishness to those who are perishing. When you start talking about how church service is just a drag, what you're doing is confessing that you're perishing. That's what you're doing. Look, I'm, gonna, I'm not saying that there isn't some part that might drag out. But that's the way I thought before I came to Christ. When I came to Christ, and I can tell you church services that I would have been a drag to me before, but things change when you're converted, because when you're converted, you receive righteousness. Righteousness is spirituality. Righteousness is that state of loving spiritual things. We don't, none of us naturally has it. So this is not a criticism of anyone here. But if you don't love spiritual things, that's just emphasizing what the apostle's saying here and what the Bible's saying, you need righteousness. You may say, I don't want to have that kind of life. Look, it's required for heaven. There are things that may not seem appealing. I'll tell you, before I became a Christian, when I was in my mid-twenties, nothing about church sounded any bit remotely interesting to me. Didn't sound like it was anything that was worthwhile. But through a a chain of events, the Lord showed me my need for something different. Listen, you can have a guy who gets upset with his wife and beats his wife and kids and doesn't think there's any problem with that, right? You may say, hey, you know what, I don't know why, I don't think it's a problem that I don't love spiritual things. There are a lot of people who think they don't have a problem with a lot of different things. Like I said, a person could beat his wife and kids and say, I don't see a problem with that, but God sees a problem with that. And ultimately, it's not going to bring that person the happiness that God intends for them to have, that he might preserve us always, as it said in Deuteronomy. In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. If you don't love spiritual things, you're just saying, I need the righteousness of Christ. I don't have any. And that's exactly what the scripture tells us. So the Bible says in Matthew chapter 6 that we are to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. It's the only kind of righteousness to be had. So when we're talking about righteousness by faith, we're simply talking about righteousness by no other way. You've got to know what righteousness is. It's, it's that state of being righteous, of being holy, of, being, of having a Christ-like character. It's God's goodness. Righteousness by faith, when we use that term, it just means you can't get it any other way. You can't get it. It's not of yourselves. It's not by works that you do. It's not because of who you're related to. Righteousness comes by faith only, and we have to have it. And that begs the question... 
How do I exercise faith in order to have righteousness? How do I get righteousness by faith? This is a question we all should wrestle with and should have wrestled with. Because if you haven't, you don't have righteousness. Now the Lord gives us a very clear illustration for how we're to find the righteousness of Christ and lay hold of that in our own lives. And we're going to spend the rest of our time in the book of Romans, chapter 4, and we're going to look at a person, a man that the Bible calls the father of the faithful. His name was Abraham. The father of the faithful because Abraham's faith was a model faith for those who would afterwards be justified by Christ. And you're going to see that as we go through the passage. Again, I'll put them on the screen here. I'm picking up in Romans chapter 4, verse 3. I'm going to uh, explain a little bit of the story of Abraham to you in just a moment. I want to start out here where the Bible says, For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Let's go into this. Let's, let, let me give you a little backstory. Okay, God called Abraham, at the time it called him Abram, Genesis chapter 12, in fact a few verses before that, called him out of his homeland, the land of Ur of the Chaldees, to the land of Canaan. Okay? Abram was 75 years old. Now I know people who are in their 30s and say, I like it where I'm living and I don't want to relocate. I'm going to tell you the last time you ever want to relocate is when you're 75. That's when you're settling down. Not only, you know, look, I, I, I hope I'm not out of turn here, but I know we got members here, and they're not, they're not maybe pushing 75, but, you know, they start to look to southern shores. You understand what I'm saying? We live in Michigan, and there's this little panhandle down at the bottom of the country that starts looking really good to people, okay? Florida, okay? I'm talking about Florida. And you get a lot of snowbirds that think, oh, I'm gonna, and, and I'm going to tell you something, that when people start thinking, you know, I'm getting older, I hate spending the winters here, and I want to go somewhere warmer, I'm going to tell you what they do. They research. Okay? Nobody just say, hey, I'm just going to head on down. No, you're going to research, you're going to look ahead, and say, where am I going to stay? Is there some property down there I can afford, et cetera, et cetera. Look at the travel brochures, get online. Abraham did not have a travel brochure. God did not come to Abraham and say, hey, listen, I want you to go to Canaan. You're 75 years old. Pick up everything and move. By the way, here's the portfolio. Check it out. See if it looks good to you. It wasn't there. It was simply God said, I'm going to... In fact, the scripture says it this way. He called Abraham to go. He said, to a land I will show you. And without question, Abraham went. God told Abraham that he was going to make him a father of many nations. 75 years old. You go on in the story through Genesis and you find that sometime later God comes to Abram and is talking to Abram and Abram said, Lord, I don't understand. See, you said I'm going to be this great nation but I don't even have one kid. Now, I'm going to have multitudes of kids if I don't even have one kid. Now, you have to understand this about Abraham as well. His wife was barren. Okay, that meant she could not biologically produce. She couldn't have children. This had been going on and on. She, they tried, and she can't have kids. That's what the Bible said. And yet God says, I'm going to make you a great nation. You've got to start with one, right? So they have this discussion in Genesis chapter 15. And Abram said, Lord, I don't understand how you're going to make me a great nation. I don't even have one child. The only thing I got close to a child is a servant in my home named Eliezer. 
And the Lord says, Abraham, let me show you something. And he takes him outside, and he shows him on a starry night, clear starry night. He says, you see the stars up there? He says, your descendants are going to be as many as those stars. And it was in response to that, the Bible says that Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness. Now, we've talked about that before, imputed, put to his account, as if, you know, you, you, you have a bank account, and somebody uh, swipes a deposit ticket and fills out some information, and poof, puts $10,000 in there. God deposited his, right, his righteousness into Abraham's account. Why? Because Abraham believed God. That's what the Bible tells us. So Abraham asked God. God says, yeah, look, we're gonna, we're, I'm, I'm going to give you a son. Abraham believed God. Time passes. Now Abraham's 86 years old. Hasn't had a child yet. His wife comes to him and says, I got an idea. Maybe, you know, God said it was going to be your kid. Didn't say it was going to be my kid. I mean, after all, I'm barren. Why don't we do this? You can go and sleep with my servant girl. You'll get her pregnant. She'll have a child, and that will be yours and hers, but it'll still be your child, and then we'll work out God's promises our own way. There's a lot I could say about that. But that's exactly what Abraham did. He had a child. They named him Ishmael. Years and years went by. In Abraham's mind, in his wife Sarah's mind, they were sure that Ishmael was going to be the one. And now when Abraham is 99 years old and Sarah is 90 years old, God comes to Abraham and he says, oh, by the way, you remember that promise? Yeah, I'm going to give you a child. Abraham was, he said, whoa, wait a minute, Lord. I mean, I have a child. We, we worked that out. I got Ishmael. And, and, and he's, he's the, t God says, no, no, no. It's going to be from you and your wife. Does anybody remember what Abraham did at that point? He laughed at God. Let me ask you something. Have you ever laughed at the idea of God doing something great with your life? There's no way he could do that. He laughed at God. He told Sarah. Sarah laughed at God. And yet, she had that child. And they called his name Isaac, which means laughter. God's promise was fulfilled to Abraham. Now, you need that back history to understand the, the Apostle Paul is building on this story to teach you and me what it means to believe in God for righteousness. Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now, let me make a point here. If you read it in Genesis, it says Abraham believed in God. And I'm glad Paul quotes the way he does. Because there's a difference between believing in God and believing God. Okay? Believing in God is I believe God exists. But how many times do you come to what God says in his word and you say, yeah, I don't know if that applies to me. You don't believe God. You just believe in God. Which you really don't because you'd believe God if you believed in him. Okay? You get some counsel from God to his last day church and you read it and you say, I just don't think it's important for me to follow that. You're not believing God. When we begin to question those things, what we're doing is we're putting our own judgment in the place of God's. We're putting our own wisdom in the place of God's. When the Bible tells us Abraham believed God, look, there was no stitch of evidence Abraham had that anything was going to work out. But God said it, and Abraham believed it. Abraham believed God. And from that point, it was counted as righteousness. Now, the, Paul goes on in his story. I want you to notice some things he brings out in this passage. God's promise to Abraham, 
This is Romans 4, 16 and 17. I've added that part in brackets just so you don't go through the whole passage. God's promise to Abraham is not only to those who are of the law, and he's speaking just of the Israelites, but also to those who are of what? In other words, his promises are to those who believe like Abraham believed. Who is the father of who? Us all. As it is written, I have made you the father, a father of many nations. So what the Apostle Paul just told us right here is when God showed Abraham the stars, he was showing Abraham you. Not just, it wasn't just the Jews, it wasn't just his natural lineage, it, were, it was the, all those who would have the same faith that Abraham had. It's those who believe like Abraham that receive the righteousness of God through Jesus Christ. Okay? Now, I, th- this is where it gets, to me, very important and very interesting. It continues on in verse 17, I'm going to preface this, by telling you that Paul is about to describe to us the way Abraham understood God, the way Abraham viewed God. In the presence of him whom Abraham believed, God, who does what? Gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist, what? As though they did. Now, I don't want you to miss this. Folks, I'm going to tell you people question things in the Scripture because they don't understand how it could happen like the Bible said. People don't believe in creation. They don't believe in the miracles of Christ. They don't believe in the virgin birth because they say, I don't understand how it could happen. Notice what it says. The way Abraham looked at God, the way he believed in God and the way he believed God was that God can give life to the dead and he can call things that don't exist as though they did. What kind of limit can you put on God when you believe like that? Is there anything God can't do when you believe like that? No, and this is where, you've got to understand that this is what, Paul's telling us this is what it means to have faith. If you're struggling with a sin in your life and you're just like, I can't ever overcome it, are you believing God? Do you, do you believe God can give life to the dead? Not when you're saying, I just don't think I can ever... I don't know if God can forgive me. I think I'm always going to be a slave to this habit. No, you're not believing God can give life to the dead. Are you believing that God can call things into existence that don't even exist? And the greatest thing that God calls into existence is righteousness in your life. How much righteousness do we say we have? How much do we need? We need all of it. And and where are we going to get it? If we can't believe that God can put righteousness where it doesn't exist, we're lost. You follow that? I mean, this is the example Scripture is giving us that Abraham believed that God could do the impossible. Now it gets better. It's just describing that Abraham believed God was one who could give life to the dead and call those things which do not exist as though they did. Continuing on, describing Abraham, he says, who contrary to hope, in hope believed, so that he became the what? The father of many nations. Let's talk about this contrary to hope. What did I say about his wife? She was barren, right? In her prime, she couldn't have children. Now he comes and she's 90 years old. Folks, if you couldn't have children in your prime, you're not having them when you're 90. Okay? Contrary to hope, in other words, there was nothing in circumstantial evidence that told Abraham this was possible. 
There was not a shred of hope in what he could see. Where was the hope? According to what was spoken. Are you getting what that's saying? When circumstances looked impossible, Abraham was clinging to what? The promises of God. He said, it doesn't matter whether I can figure it out or not. God said it. And God is able to do it. According to what was spoken. Now he continues on. Oh, let me share these statements. Testimonies, volume 2, page 662 says this. A man will act out what? All the faith that he has. We get in these debates over faith and works. We're not saved by our works. No, we're not saved by our works. But I'm going to tell you, a person acts out all the faith they have. And a person that's not acting out, they don't have any faith. Abraham acted out. He picked up and moved because he had faith in God. Ellen White puts it this way in Patriarchs and Prophets, page 126. Abraham's unquestioning obedience is one of the most striking evidences of faith in all the Bible. What is our obedience? What's it say? It's an evidence of our faith. If I'm not obeying, what am I really doing? I'm evidencing I don't have faith. Don't don't lose that. Those things go together. Now, Paul continues to talk about Abraham. He says, and not being weak in faith, he, speaking of Abraham, did not consider his own body already dead since he was about 100 years old. That sounds kind of cruel almost. And the de- I hope nobody's pushing 100 here. And the deadness of Sarah's womb, he's trying to make a point, of course, from a biological standpoint and having children and what have you. Two things I want you to notice that he brings up that kept Abraham's faith strong. He didn't consider what? What's the first thing? His own body. What does that include? Think about this for a minute. How many times has God called you to do something and the first thing you look at is your ability to do it? What are you considering? You're considering your own body. That's what it's talking about. How many times has God called you to do something or called you to confess something or, or, or promised you victory in something and you look at yourself and you say, I can't, I've tried it so many times. What are you looking at? Your own body. If Abraham did look at his own body, there would have been hopeless. He didn't consider his own personal weakness. Don't miss this. If you want to have saving faith, you can't be thinking about your own weakness. Are you weak? Yes. Am I weak? Yes. We could sit here all day. How long you got? I'll pull up a chair and let me tell you about all my weaknesses. But it's not about me and it's not about you. It's about what God can do through us and in us and for us. Abraham did not consider his own weaknesses. Nor, or and he says, the deadness of Sarah's womb. What's that have to do with? If the body has to do with our own weaknesses, what what do you think that other part has to do with? Put yourself in Abraham's shoes. What was the deadness of Sarah's womb? That was opposing circumstances, right? The circumstances are impossible. Even if I felt I was strong, it's impossible because Sarah can't have children. Two things the Bible is very clear about that Abraham did not give any kind of thought to. He refused to look at his own weakness, and he refused to look at his circumstances and let them hold him back. 
It didn't matter whether the circumstances around him looked impossible. He believed beyond what he could see and feel. Brothers and sisters, do not miss this, that Bible faith goes far beyond feeling. I was talking with Pastor Daniel, and he says we have some young people that are thinking about baptism, and they're, they're not quite sure they're ready. Well, you know, that, sometimes that's, that's the case. But sometimes we're waiting for a feeling that's never going to come. The Christian life is not about feeling a certain way. Can you say today, I want to commit my life to Jesus? Then do it. Don't wait until you feel a certain way. The devil play all around with your feelings. Abraham did not consider his own body. He did not consider the deadness of Sarah's womb. He wasn't looking at his weaknesses. He wasn't looking at circumstances. He believed what God said. There may be some here today who feel like you're sitting here and you're thinking, I'm never going to be able to be the kind of person God wants me to be. Says who? God doesn't say that. God promises you his righteousness, and through his righteousness you can be everything he wants you to be. Abraham did not consider these things. Notice what it goes on to say. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God, and don't miss this last part, being what? How convinced? Fully convinced that what he, God, had promised, he, God, was also able to perform. Therefore, it was accounted to him for righteousness. In other words, what the Apostle Paul is telling us is, it wasn't just Abraham believed God, it was Abraham believed God this way. It's because Abraham believed that God could call things that are dead as though they're living. It's because he believed God could call into existence things that weren't. It's because he didn't consider his own weakness, but considered God's strength. It's because he believed that whatever God promised no matter how impossible it seemed, God could do. And that kind of faith brought to him the righteousness of Christ. Now it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but also for who? For us. It shall be imputed to us who believe. And the text goes on, but that's the point. The Apostle Paul says, we don't have righteousness, We've looked at that. We need righteousness. We need a new birth. We need conversion. We need that character of God in us. We can't produce it. It isn't in our bloodline. It isn't in our association with the great men of the earth. But it is in Jesus Christ. And he will freely give it to all who have the kind of faith, exercise the kind of faith that Abraham had, which is believing the word of God beyond what you think or feel. Having full confidence that whatever God promises you, God can do in spite of you. Is that the kind of faith that you have today? Now let me tell you something. If you say, no, I don't have that kind of faith. You know what? God says he'll even give that to you. I mean, how can you lose? The Lord will give us all things that pertain to life and godliness Peter tells us. I want to finish with this statement in the book Faith and Works. This is that summer reading, just a reminder, which is full of very clear explanations, much more than I can do in this particular message. Righteousness is obedience to the law. And, and I, we could say more, you know, thorough, from the heart, what have you. The law demands righteousness, and this the sinner owes to the law, but he is what? Incapable of rendering it. 
The only way in which he can attain to righteousness is through faith, which is why we don't talk about righteousness any other way. We're talking about righteousness by faith, because it's the only way you're going to get it. By faith, he can bring to God the merits of who? Christ. You can do that. Come before God with that lamb. Come before God with Christ. Bring the merits of Christ. And the Lord places the obedience of his son to the sinner's account. Isn't that powerful? You don't have to look at your bad track record. The Lord places the obedience of his son to your account, just like he imputed righteousness to Abraham's account. Christ's righteousness is accepted in place of man's failure. Brothers and sisters, that takes every excuse off of our lips. There is nothing, no reason we should be kept from the kingdom of God. Christ's righteousness is accepted in place of man's failure, and God receives, pardons, justifies the repentant, believing soul, treats him as though he were righteous, and loves him as he loves his son. This is how faith is accounted righteous. Righteousness. Now, we can get into all kinds of theological discussions, but at the core of it, it's right there. Abraham believed God, and God put righteousness to his account. The question today is, are you, be, are you willing to believe God? Are you willing to venture out? Are you willing to just say, Lord, help me to have the faith of Abraham? How many of you here today want to receive the righteousness of Christ? Is that your desire today? God recognizes those hands. Now listen, it's easy to raise my hand here, but when we go out of this building, when God gives you direction, when God tells you what to do, you believe God. You go like Abraham went. You ask God for the strength. For some of you here, you have been wrestling over giving your lives to Christ. Some of you, maybe it's the decision of baptism. For some of you, you haven't even made the decision to follow Christ yet. I want to encourage you there are cards I mentioned to you in the pews. We read them. And if there's something that you, a commitment you want to make, if you've been wrestling with this, maybe you have a question, maybe you want to make the decision, maybe you say, I want somebody to visit with me. You take one of those, you fill that out. I would love to visit with you. One of the pastoral staff would love to visit with you and help you with that decision. But, my friends, we don't have a lot of time left. We have the righteousness of Christ freely offered to us. And the fact of the matter is that we don't appreciate it nearly as we should. In fact, I read a statement recently that said, it was speaking of the Jews, and it said, because they had such great light and privileges but didn't respond to them, they were the most hard-hearted people in the world, the hardest to reach with the truth. You connect the dots with that. We sit and yawn through sermons that are offering the righteousness of Christ, and we haven't laid hold of it yet, and something is wrong. And there's coming a day when we will wish we had laid hold of the righteousness of Christ. Why wait? Now is the accepted time, the apostle says. Now is the day of salvation. I want to encourage you today to make your decision to give your life to Christ. Amen? Bow your heads with me, please, as we pray. Father in heaven, Father, as we've reflected upon these things today, what a bankruptcy we have when it comes to goodness and righteousness. Lord, there's nothing that we have that we can offer to you. And yet, so freely, you have offered us the righteousness of your own Son, Jesus Christ. You've offered us your righteousness through him. The righteousness that comes 
by faith. Father, as we've looked at the Scripture and seen the faith of Abraham, the implicit, unquestioning trust, help us to have that same kind of faith. That we would believe that whatever you promise, you are able to perform. That you can transform our lives and do wonderful things in and through us. Father, I pray a special prayer for our young people. We have seniors here today who are going to be moving on to various places. Some of them have an idea. Some of them haven't even processed it yet. But Lord, you know all things. And you have a great work for them to do. And I pray that they would see that high calling in their lives, that they would experience that righteousness of Christ that would give them that fullness of joy. Now, Father, bless us through the remaining hours of this Sabbath. We ask it in Jesus' name. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.